Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, talking about the new American and Native American collection installation at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. It's titled On This Ground, Being and Belonging in America. My guests are the two curators, Sarah Chassie and Karen Kramer. Their installation joins two separate institutional collections in a way that joins art to 10,000 years of North American history, and in doing so, often suggests how art influenced and extended ideas core to the continental story. The installation is on view indefinitely. Often institutions present recent work and historical work in ways that suggest the installation is a kind of elision of complicated ideologies and histories within the historical work, but not here. The Peabody Essex really got it right. On the second segment, one of the artists from the installation, Jason Garcia. But first, Sarah Chassie and Karen Kramer, after the break. Don't miss out on being the first to view A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition asks 12 contemporary artists to trace their personal stories through the Great Migration and explore their family connections to the South. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition will unveil newly commissioned works across media. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. For more than 30 years, Los Angeles-based artist Andrea Bowers has made art that activates. Combining artistic practice with activism and advocacy, the work speaks to deeply entrenched inequities and the generations of activists working to create a more just world. This summer, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the first museum retrospective, surveying the entire scope and evolution of Bowers' production. Bringing together over 60 works and a trove of ephemera, the exhibition reflects Bauer's experimentation with a wide range of mediums and her impact as a chronicler of contemporary history. Andrea Bowers, on view at Hammer from June 19th to September 4th. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. And we're back. Karen Kramer and Sarah Chassie, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here, Tyler. Thank you so much for having us, Tyler. This is very exciting. Well, so is the Peabody Essex's recent American installation, which I was delighted to discover starts in in an atypical way. What is the non-artwork you chose to start your American art galleries with and why? This is Sarah. I think that you are referring to the 1629 Massachusetts Bay Charter that we have on view in the introduction, along with some other artworks. So why did you choose to start your American art galleries with a charter? 
So first, I want to contextualize that there are Native American and American art galleries. That's an important distinction for us in terms of how we're identifying the galleries. But I think it's interesting that you, it is maybe the first object that you see in some ways, and yet we very much see it as a constellation of objects, and the charter is in conversation with an American portrait and two Native American works. And so we see it very much as this conversation between these objects and artworks. But yes, the charter is very intentionally part of that. And I think for the Peabody Essex Museum, we're very always very much pushing at mixing media and time periods. And so for us, it, it wasn't that much of a leap to incorporate a manuscript into this conversation because it is the seminal document for the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and eventually the founding of, of the Commonwealth. And it is very part, much part of that conversation that we're trying to get at, exploring connections between indigenous perspectives of being in this place and the English colonists' perspectives in, in coming to this place. What work does the Charter do there in collaboration with the works that kind of fan out around it, if you will, that are, that are kind of, as you walk into the gallery, it's almost like there is a, a stage or an apse type space that the visitor approaches and, and like multiple things unfold before him or her or them. So this is Sarah again. And so I'll just, I'll speak first to the connection between the charter and the Robert Feek portrait. So the charter is in a direct pairing with an 1750 portrait of Judge Richard Saltonstall by Robert Feek. And there are a lot of connections between the portrait itself. It's the sitter, Judge Richard Saltonstall and the Charter, so direct family connections in that the Saltonstall family shepherded the Charter for many generations, ultimately giving it to the Salem Athenaeum, who are, owns the Charter, and it is currently on loan to the Peabody Essex Museum. But also visually, the portrait of Saltonstall is is sort of giving this visual representation of of the this colonial motivations that are represented by that foundational document where King Charles is granting granting the right as ordained by God for his settlers to uh, populate and settle this area. Tyler, this is Karen, and I just wanted to add on to that, that we purposefully paired the charter and the Feek portrait with a larger-than-life monitor of Massachusetts elder Elizabeth Solomon, who is active and very much present and asserting that presence through a dynamic video that is essentially a land acknowledgement. And Elizabeth is welcoming visitors to the space. She is reminding our visitors that wherever you are in the Americas, you're always on indigenous land. And she talks about her community's ancestral ties to what is now the city of Salem and talks deeply about this sense of belonging to place being shaped by multiple relations. And next to this monitor of Elizabeth's video is basalt stone bear, this beautiful stylized small stone bear that was found in Salem about a mile and a half from the Peabody Essex Museum in the late 19th century, and it was likely carved by a Pawtucket artist 
who again sort of held ties to this region and had ancestral connections to Elizabeth's community. And so through the bear and through Elizabeth, you get a very different sense of belonging to place and responsibility to each other, to community, to the land, to ancestors, to the elements than you do through the document of the Massachusetts Bay Charter of 1629 and the way that Judge Richard Saltonstall is standing in front of the land that he inherited from his parents in what is now Haverhill, Massachusetts. It's just this really different juxtaposition that we hope gets our visitors thinking about different ways of knowing a place, different ways of connecting to a place, and a different sense of land ownership, if you will. One of the reasons the the opening to the galleries is really effective is because with 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 those three or four objects, especially in conjunction with the series of Will Wilson portraits that are just to their left as you walk into the galleries, there is this combination of address of history, including with, you know, foundational historical material, and an address of the present. And none of it seems forced or or labored. It's it, it's a very natural link, which is one of the strengths throughout the installation. So one of the, the I got I think the next place I wanted to go is that one of the strongest threads that runs across and through the entire installation is is the foundational approach that Native people are still here. Here being in the Greater Boston area in eastern Massachusetts, here in New England, and while. Your collection mostly addresses the Northeast. You know, there are obvious offshoots from that in Address of the American Nation. So I suspect that thematic address didn't emerge overnight, as it were, that there was a process that brought not only the curatorial team, but also the museum's leadership, which I guess I should note turned over during this process, and the board and other stakeholders along. So how did, how did that process work in advance? How, how were you able to get that address address as forward across the entire installation in a rare way so successfully. This is Karen, and thank you so much for picking up on the very contemporary presence of Indigenous peoples in the gallery. We like to say that we've been collecting contemporary Native art since 1799, since our institution's founding. But I would say since 1995, we have been putting forward a concerted effort to grow our collection, to bridge our historical collection that is world-renowned with the contemporary arts and creative expressions of indigenous brilliance today. And that was under the leadership of our former director, Dan Monroe. And between Dan Monroe and our current director, Linda Hartigan, both of them have been very committed to working with contemporary indigenous people And you see that expressed through our Native American Fellowship Program. We're in the 13th summer of running our program. You see it through exhibitions that we have done over the past decade and a half. And you can see it expressed also in the current installation that we're here talking with you about on this ground, being and belonging in America. And so we have been collecting contemporary Native art, mostly from the United States and Canada, not even focusing on the Northeast, but really just collecting 
more broadly than that. And so our institutional commitment really does stem from Dan's dogged determination to invite and incite change in the way that the public perceives Native cultures. We want to complicate history. We want to complicate people's understandings, bring them deeper, and get them a more nuanced understanding of histories, the experience of the ongoing experience of colonization, as well as resilience and ideas of dynamism and change. We want to bring them out of a staid representation of Native people that is perpetually in motion in visual culture, in popular media in, in America, and bring them to a deeper place. And so through those efforts, I think our board has been very supportive our audience has been very receptive, and so you can see this playing out in real time in our current installation. So from the very beginning, Dan and Linda charged the curatorial team with bringing these two collections together and didn't necessarily tell us how to do it, gave us the running room to figure out a good way to do it and make it work. And it took many people many years. We have a wonderful set of Native and non-Native advisors. Our Native American fellows have contributed in significant ways. We had multiple people in various you know, departments across the museum who really helped bring this to bear. And at the very heart of it is the fact that we can't have American history, we can't have American art without Native American art people history, culture. There is no such thing. And that was like our guiding ethos. One of the things you've done across pretty much the entire installation is that you've chosen to mix historical American art, you know, paintings of the White Mountains from the 19th century with contemporary work. I think in a lot of contexts at other museums, that can be an elision, a, a refusal to curatorially and historically interrogate the past. But it works in your galleries, I think, because the discourses between the works and the history presented is far, far, far from elision. So how did you as a team approach mixing the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries? Yeah, how did you approach mixing them and making it work? This is Sarah. I think that's a really good question and certainly was probably our greatest challenge in in how Karen was describing tackling how do we bring these collections together and our native american collections are so broad and deep geographically as karen referenced but our american collections i think as, as you were noting are are much more regionally based much more focused on salem and coastal massachusetts and so that is a sort of imbalance between the two areas and so it was Definitely something we had to spend a lot of time workshopping and figuring out how to bring things together. And I think figuring out a unifying interpretive approach to take across the whole gallery and also early on in our sessions with our advisors, trying to figure out what that balance should be between giving each collection its own space. And we often sort of refer to it as a double helix where the collections come together in conversation for different moments 
and then they they break apart to be on their own. And that developed because our advisory team really felt, uh, especially our Native American scholars and artists, really felt like there needed to be moment sovereign moments for the Native American works of art and representing the artists in those sections. And therefore, we also have the the same treatment for certain American sections. And then throughout the collections, moments where the collections come together in conversation and where we're sort of asking the visitors questions about what these connections mean, whether they're aesthetic connections, historical connections, or did I already say aesthetic? (laughs) So I hope that sort of gets at your question. Karen, do you want to add something? I would just add perhaps that mixing old with new, historical with contemporary is something that the Native American department has been doing steadily since the 1990s and bringing those continuities to bear in collaboration with the American collection was really exciting. And finding the contemporary American works that can be in conversation with some historical Native art was exciting and vice versa. Could you each give us an example of historical art, more recent art conversations of which you're particularly fond? This is Karen. I am really excited about how this one particular pairing came together. In our Heroes and Histories section, we are asking the visitor to consider if the same stories are repeatedly told, whose stories are we missing? And so we paired the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, a historical event in what is now the American Southwest with the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. These two events were separated by about 12 years and 2,000 miles, and yet there are really remarkable similarities. We commissioned from Jason Garcia, who is Santa Clara Pueblo, seven ceramic painted tiles that tell the story of the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 in this comic book style approach and how the native villages throughout the Spaniards after decades of horrible oppression, subjugation, physical and sexual violence, heavy taxation on the heels of a long drought had an uprising that was led by Oke Owinge religious figure Pope And so we also commissioned a ceramic figure by Virgil Ortiz of Pope, and he also did the graphic behind Pope. So between those two ways of telling this history of the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, which many Native people in the Southwest know as the first American Revolution, we put that moment in conversation with the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, we're looking to open a conversation about religious persecution, land grabbing, and other kinds of oppression. The Heroes in History is that pairing of those two historical moments of the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 and the Witch Trials of 1692 is really exciting and dynamic. And I think what really resonates for me, as Karen was talking about Jason Garcia and Virgil Ortiz and the works that they create to bring sort of this visual resonance to those historical events that we don't have a visual representation for is very powerful. And then in contrast, in the section on the Salem Witch Trials, we have this array of amazing period 
documents and objects and artworks that really speak to the material lives of the people involved in the trials, whether they're the accused or the accusers, and continuing on these themes that Karen talked about in terms of the religious persecution and intolerance that was rife in that culture in the Massachusetts Bay Colony at that time. But also we have two large-scale history paintings by Tompkins, Harrison, Madison, bringing this imagined visual representation of different scenes related to the witch trials. And they're very dynamic and colorful and thinking about the role of the artist in representing history, I think is something that's really unifying those two sections. You know, I think the Madison paintings internally at the museum have been among our most requested images for rights and reproductions for decades because because there is that lack of visual representation of scenes of the witch trials and there are this iconic american historical moment that are you know is constantly referred to in the in the present day in so many contexts and so those images get reproduced in textbooks and brochures and all sorts of references to the witch trials so to think about that power of these 19th century paintings, which are really over-romanticized and dramatized and imagined scenes of the witch trials and how much power they still hold as a, a visual representation of that historical moment. Speaking of representation, I think one of the other things the installation does a really great job of is not being only about representation. I think in current, in, in today's museum culture, museums quite often choose to avoid challenging historical questions by saying, look, we, our strategy is representational to let contemporary artists into the museum, contemporary artists who are from backgrounds that the museum had long historically excluded, and then just kind of figure they'd done the work. Whereas across this installation, even when representation is the point, it's done in a way that makes connections between representation and historical narrative construction and erasure. So maybe to make this more specific, in according to my notes anyway, <laughs> in three different places in the installation, there are three works I want to kind of hang this idea on. You have included Edward Curtis. You have not avoided how problematic his work is. There are three Edward Curtises. There is the Will Wilson I mentioned earlier that's at the opening of the suite of galleries in which Wilson photographs native New Englanders, maybe 20 people. My ballparky? Yeah, we have 13 portraits by contemporary Wampanoag community members, yes. And then the third work is Akara Romero. Did you think of those three works in conjunction with each other? Were you hoping visitors would make connections across the space between maybe those three and maybe some others too? This is Karen. I definitely hope that visitors will make some visual connections between the Wilson portrait wall and the Curtises. And, I mean, they're separated by a few thousand feet. And walls, we should say. And and walls, (laughs) yeah. But the kind of visual power of Will Wilson's wall of portraits and that black and white photography print is connected very much to the three Curtises that we have. We mentioned Curtis in the label, you know, whether or not our visitors are actually making that connection is TBD, but I think that was a purposeful connection 
but I didn't want to have Curtis photographs muddying up the intro area that is really focused on this particular region and the Curtis's that we have are mostly from the West. And then also where the Curtis's are located is in a section where the American and Native American collections come together. It's a section called Myths and Motives. And that is looking at how the United States really depended on racialized depictions of minorities and it, as a way to justify ongoing dispossession, enslavement, and displacement of Native peoples, African Americans. We look at the Chinese Exclusion Act. And so the Curtises are placed within that section. And then directly following that section is a Native American-only section called We Are the New Ancestors that Cara Romero's portrait of Nikki is in. And it's this powerful female figure who's crouching. And originally, before like we really got going on exhibition design, we actually had Cara's portrait with a painting by T.C. Cannon and one other work by a Native contemporary artist, and we really wanted those portraits, contemporary artists, to be talking back to images, stereotypical images of Native people by non-Native people. So we wanted to set up this call and response, and I think we do that even though you kind of turn the corner and then see the Cara Romero really talking back to those staid, romanticized depictions of Native people by Curtis. The three Curtis pictures are on the wall with a painting by Remington. So between that wall and then you turn the corner and you see T.C. Cannon, you see Cara Romero, it's meant very purposefully to be all about self-representation and a real bold assertion of indigenous ways of knowing and being in the world. Yeah, I think the call and response throughout the galleries works. Like, I think it's super clear. I think you can't miss it. I think on one of the days I was there, there were children who were, you know, I, 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 like 12, 13 year old children who were getting it and who were pulling their parents from one to other. You know, it, it, it's that clear that not only do you see it, but you see it and want to share it. Another pairing, and this one is a literal pairing, like they're near each other, but I really liked are works by Alan Hauser and Hiram Powers, who I think are unlike artists in most ways, except for they work in three dimensions, perhaps. What are, <laughs> what, are those, what are those two works and why did y'all put them together? This is Sarah. I'll take this one. That's a great question. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you asked about those works because I think they somehow, sometimes in our tours and talks, they get a little bit overlooked, but we in particular really love that pairing. On a very straightforward level, we were making this direct connection between two works of sculpture by a Native an American artist. And I think it's in a section called Status and Style, and it's exploring how objects can hold layers of, it's continuing these themes of identity and representation, but particularly how women's power and identity can be expressed through different objects and how style can also convey those, those themes. And so they are also two sculpture, each is a sculpture of a woman. And I think the Hiram Powers is representing, it's a portrait, a bust of Martha Endicott Peabody, but she is reimagined as the goddess Proserpine. 
And that was one of his most successful sculptures to represent his subjects as proserpine. This one is is a particularly, I think, accomplished sculpture. And so reimagining this American woman as as this goddess figure, as she's she's sort of coming out of a bed of laurel leaves and this very elegant neoclassical bust. In conversation with Alan Hauser's Apache uh, sculpture of an Apache woman, so also we just really love the material connections. Yes, they're both sculptures, but the the uh, Hiram Powers is is the Italian marble, and the Hauser is Utah alabaster. So th- and you know, in contrast to the way that the Powers sculpture of Peabody is is sort of elevated on this neoclassical column rising out of these laurel leaves, the Hauser figure is a full body figure, but she's sort of kneeling on the on the assumed ground. And so the fact that she's made of Utah alabaster sort of speaks to that, the earth. So she's sort of rising up from the ground and she's also made from this, this material from the Southwestern earth and she's rising up from the earth. So just thinking about those material connections between the two sculptures and, and the, the different cultural perspectives really resonated for us. There's a lot of American intellectual history within the pairing, too, that has to do with those materials. I mean, when Ralph Waldo Emerson is writing in the 1830s, urging Americans to make art from and of American nature and to address the American nation with it, he's urging Americans to turn their backs on Europe, to to not replicate European forms. And he's suggesting, but not saying directly, that they not use European materials. In fact, Emerson and his journals and in his correspondence criticizes his Harvard friend Horatio Greeno for getting stuck in European forms and using European marble, as Powers did, addressing America with with European materials. And so within this installation is both that old form that America's first generation of white intellectuals were contesting, and then Hauser's work, which which uses America to to address Native America, it uses Native American homeland to address Native American presence in a way that emphasizes perpetuity, perpetualness. I'm not sure what the word is, but it's a sculpture that is much wider at the base than it is in the top. You get very much the feeling that the thing is not going anywhere, that people are not going anywhere. Mm, that's interesting to think about it that way. I also think about Hauser as as an artist who uses the language of modernism to assert an indigenous presence and perspective and worldview. So I think that very much connects to what you're talking about. And I also just love her hair. That texture of her hair is so beautiful. And in contrast with Horatio Powers' sculpture of of that woman's features, it's just this beautiful aesthetic pairing. She's more alive than Martha Endicott Peabody is. <laughs> you could argue that. Which is exactly what Emerson's criticism of Greeno's cohort <laughs> was. So I, I nerded out on, <laughs> on that pairing in a big way. Oh, that's great to hear. I'll just add, sorry, this is Sarah. I'll just add to that. I love some of the the art historical and, and historical threads that you're pulling out with that. But to Karen's point, just visually and aesthetically, we loved looking at just the artist, the carving techniques and the way that each artist is representing hair. And 
of these two women. And that's something that we really tried hard to do to balance throughout the gallery. There's a lot of heavy history, but throughout it was important for us to, to have moments where it's more about aesthetics and joy and, and making these visual connections between works. Yeah. I just got to say, I never felt in the entire installation, like the joy was absent. I mean, you know, I don't, I maybe I'm more comfortable swimming in historical waters than lots of people who walk into an art. <laughs> but, but for me, that was always, you know, that, that wasn't an issue. I want to close with a work that I guess mostly has not a ton to do with what we've been talking about, but that might be, might be my favorite work in your entire collection. And it's a, painting that speaks to both local and national histories, and it's George Ropes Jr.'s 1808 Same Common on Training Day, which, as far as I'm concerned, deserves to be one of the much better known pictures of the early American 19th century. What is in the picture, and what should it help us better understand about American ideas about equality and shared national and the shared national project ideas, which of course would, would change pretty, pretty shortly after 1808 as the, the 19th century went on. This is Sarah. Thank you, Tyler. I'm really thrilled to hear that. It is certainly one of my favorite paintings in our collection. And I think I agree with you that this painting deserves so much more attention, even, you know, beyond our reverence for it here at the Peabody Essex Museum. So Salem Common on Training Day represents a day where the Salem was the home of the National Guard, and the Salem Common is still very much an active community gathering space to this day, right in the heart of Salem. And that that common space in the painting is depicted covered with all these military troops who are marching and and practicing their, their military exercises. But it was very much a community day. The painting is richly detailed. You can take in so much of the scene visually, but it also warrants a magnifying glass to see all the tiny details that ropes captures. And so surrounding the common are, it's very much like a festival day where there are booths of people selling food and and other items. And then all around the common are families and people and all these members of the communities, community walking and enjoying the day. And it's very much this communal experience. And what's particularly notable in the very foreground of the figures walking across the most immediate part of the foreground are many prominent African-American families. I think the painting is, is incredibly detailed and is so important for depicting this communal event and in particular, it is very notable for the inclusion and depiction of black families who are walking along with all the other community members in the scene. And going back to your point about representation as well, I want to call out that one thing we did throughout the galleries was to commission outside authors to write labels. And so in the particular case of our George Ropes painting, we commissioned a local scholar of Black New England experience, Gwendolyn Rosamond, and she wrote the label for this work. And she really is calling out the agency of those Black community members and how important it is that Ropes is including them. Ropes is also a deaf artist, so she's also maybe inferring that his own disability is giving him sort of this broader perspective on inclusion and the people that he's capturing in the scene. One of the things I I really love about those black figures in the foreground is that they are dressed in red, white, and blue. 
and across 19th century American art, it is extraordinarily rare for white artists to paint black figures wearing the colors of the American flag. Extremely common for them in paintings addressing the American nation or the idea of the American nation to paint white figures wearing red, white, and blue. Indeed, it's a key way in which painters establish that an address or certain individuals within a painting are, are addressing the American nation. It's really rare that painters do that with black figures. And here it's not just once. It happens several places in the painting. It's it's striking, rare, exceptional. Exactly. And There's out. not just one person. And there are family units, there are individuals, and they are all you know, all the details of their dress. And I love that you caught on that connection of the red, white, and blue across the different figures is, is really powerful. And there's still a lot of more research and analysis that we, we hope to do with this work going into the future. And, and, and like you said, they're in the foreground. So this is not a, a burying of a token figure or three in the background of the picture. They are as much a part of the community and the events as the white people in the painting. Exactly. It's, it's yeah, remarkable and an exceptional object. Karen Kramer and Sarah Chassie, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tyler. It's been such a delight to be on your podcast. Very grateful. Thank you so much for letting us share this project with you. On view at the Getty Center through October 28th, the fascinating new exhibition, Working Together, the Photographers of the Kamoingi Workshop, depicts black life during the 1960s and 1970s through an artistic lens. The photographs of the Kamoingi Workshop capture unique portraits of music legends like Miles Davis, Grace Jones, and Mahalia Jackson, moments in the civil rights movement, and artful abstractions often printed in dark tones that evoke the unsettling era in which they were made. Join Getty for the first major retrospective presenting the work of a collaborative chapter of American photography. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Summer Immersive Series is back at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Experience Leandro Ehrlich, Seeing is Not Believing, an exhibition that comes to life. Unlock your imagination and cast your reflection onto the multi-story building or become the patient in the psychiatrist's office. Add to your summer bucket list and get tickets at mfah.org slash Leandro Ehrlich. Behold the dynamic, daring, and diverse works from the pioneering artist Linda Benglis. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents recent sculptures in media ranging from traditional bronze to decorative glitter that trace Benglis's career interests in surface, color, and scale. Visit the exhibition through September 18th and learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Jason Garcia, works from whose Tewa Tales of Suspense series is included in the Peabody Essexes On This Ground. Garcia's work often examines and interprets American and Pueblo history in ways that revise old, whites-centering narratives. His work is in the collection of museums such as the Heard Museum in Phoenix and the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. Jason Garcia, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for the invitation to speak with you today. I can't resist starting here. Do you enjoy comic books or do you value them in ways that aren't really about enjoyment? I would say both. I would <laughs> say I love comic books. I enjoy them. I grew up with them. 
I don't collect them as much as I used to. I think in the 90s, there was that whole collecting fervor of like, you know, if you collect these comics, they're going to be your retirement investment thing. But then the value, (laughs) they just overprinted so much that the value became essentially worthless. So, you know, there's a lot of foil covers, alternate covers that just became worthless, essentially, like not even worth the paper they're printed on. So as far as collecting, that's how I got kind of out of my collecting period and kind of moved over to more graphic novels and yeah, more graphic novels versus like your regular Batman, Spider-Man comics, more alternative. What about comic book iconography and comic book covers and comic book ways of image building, if you will, made that form something you wanted to adapt and remake? I think probably just the flashiness, that superhero aspect, superhero, just boom, splash in your face, you know, of seeing, you know, like iconic covers. Like one I can imagine is like the Dark Knight number one by Frank Miller with Batman, where he's like, there's like a lightning bolt, Batman silhouetted against the moon or the Batman signal. And then there's another, then like that whole series of, of the Dark Knight Returns, like all those color uh, covers are, are, you know, I, icons. Sometimes you see like the old Tewa Tell, or the old Tells of Suspense, which is inspiration for Tewa Tells of Suspense. You see the uh, Jack Kirby covers and they're, maybe they tell the story or they're like a glimpse into the characters, but sometimes covers have necessarily nothing to do with the story inside. So that's also the other part of it, of, of that. You know, sometimes with comic books, you know, you can judge a book by its cover or you can't, you know, <laughs> it's kind of one of those things <laughs> or, or even reading artists where, you know, they'd have different artists on contract and maybe they do a set of 10, 12, but if they didn't have a cover finished in time for press, then they just say, oh, pull one from the archives and we'll use that. So that's also part of that relating to the cover is different from the story. So, What motivated you or informed you as you thought about migrating comic book forms to an address of, of history? Uh, just growing up, being totally immersed in popular culture. My parents are artists, so you know they would have different shows in different cities throughout, I guess you would say, the West and Southwest. I know one always our memorable trips that I always had was, you know, we go to a new city. I think of one Sacramento right now, you know, my parents had a gallery show at downtown Sacramento. You know, the first thing my older brother and I would do would grab, you know, the phone book, you know, look under bookstores, comic bookstores and see what was in the yellow pages, figure out where they were at, look on the map. And then you know, my parents were at the show and then my brother and I would say like, okay, we're going to go look for this comic book store. We'll be back. So, you know, we'd either walk there, take the bus, you know, just kind of go out on an adventure and see some of those comic book stores and, you know, have some money in our pocket and, you know, buy stuff and then come back when we needed to and, you know, sit there and read what we bought. Also uh, growing up, my parents had a gallery in Vail, Colorado. So we usually go through Denver. This is 1980s. A gentleman by the name of Chuck Rosansky has a 
comic book store called Mile High Comics. And I think in the 80s, he probably had anywhere from six to 10 stores throughout the whole Denver area. He's consolidated now to one huge, huge store warehouse in Denver. He's uh, amazing. He has an amazing Pueblo Pottery collection and is, and is also a collector of my work. And I, I didn't really meet him until maybe about 10, 15 years ago. You know, that was always a treat of going to stopping there in Mile High Comics and kind of looking at the store and maybe buying a, a couple books for the ride back home. And so, you know, that that part of, of just growing up immersed in, in popular culture, comic books, and then also as a kid and as a, in elementary school, you know, you buy those classic comics. And then there was, I, I still recall that Walgreens, they had like these little classic comic books. They're probably... I'd say maybe three by four inches. They're like adaptations. And I don't know, they were like four for a dollar or something. So I remember buying like the entire, cleaning out the entire set of them. So, you know, you're reading these comics that are Hunchback of Notre Dame, Romeo and Juliet, Pride and Prejudice, you know, just things like that. So, you know, you're kind of reading those stories. And then when you get into high school and junior high, you know, we'd be reading those books and saying like, oh, we're going to be reading Wuthering Heights or something like that. So like, uh, it's kind of boring. So I just go to the shelf and pull the, you know, comic book adaptation, classic comics, and then kind of read that and that kind of helped me or so I think, you know, that all of that influence then moved, migrated over, or I don't even know if it's migration. It's just like, it's just the connection. It's just inseparable between my own interest in popular culture, collecting action figures, being a history nerd, again, of going to different cities, visiting museums, field museum, Smithsonian in junior high as well, too, middle school, and and just seeing how a story can be told in graphic illustration. And then you start making the connections between Pueblo arts, Pueblo Kiva murals, stories. You start seeing codex, you start seeing native history, native superheroes, cultural migrations. And then you start thinking about the hero story. You start thinking about Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader. And so there's all these connections that start making like, okay, I could do something like that in terms of my own Tewa historical events like Pueblo Revolt, colonization of New Mexico, daily life, observations of daily life in, in that graphic comic book series. And then moving into more of a graphic novel, which is a, I don't know if you would say experience or understanding. So then you start reading authors like Harvey Picar, which is just like the every man of Cleveland, you know, and then he has uh, his story, his daily life stuff. Then you look at Los Brothers Hernandez, uh, Jaime and Gilbert Hernandez and their Love and Rocket series and how they're documenting, you know, fictional village of Palomar and so many characters and then influenced by authors, writers. So it's just really making that that daily observation or the cultural changes. So I always say the ever-changing cultural landscape of Santa Clara Pueblo, Japo Winge. Uh, Japo Winge is the traditional Tewa name for uh, Santa Clara Pueblo. It means rose path. So when our ancestors, I guess you would say, settled or established the Pueblo, there were uh, wild roses growing along the uh, Santa Clara Creek. So it's, you know, descriptive of the place that, that our ancestors came to when they moved off to Pajarito Plateau after, you know, major droughts and 
So, you know, again, there's all those, you know, different stories and wanting to illustrate it, not only for myself, who had the interest in history, but then also interest in for my own kids, my, my three kids, and then also other youth as well, two Pueblo youth. And because, uh, again, being we were talking earlier about being like history nerds and, you know, that's part of it of where you're, you learn, learn visually or, or through graphic novels of just learning. It's just another another tool of learning. So that that's kind of how I moved into all of that. The work at the Peabody Essex features what appear to be the covers of comic books, a phrase I'm using because, of course, they're not actually books. And the covers are, are narrative and across seven objects, story from the earliest date, the pictures are the images address 1598 to the latest 1692. What is the narrative the work addresses? And how do you think through telling a hundred year narrative across seven air quotes covers? Yeah, when you say a hundred years. So in terms of, of the cover, the seven images it's interesting in, in that of when I think of the covers, Tewa tells the suspense covers, people always ask me, like, where's the book? And I say it's a work in progress, which it is. <laughs> but I like where, it. In terms of the covers, I think it's part of that idea of what I was saying, you know, of the story. Sometimes the story can be all told in one cover, like a movie poster. Or it's just a glimpse into it where you have to investigate more. And so that's part of it. Tewa tells the suspense. The cover aspect is like the annual. You know, you'd see like the uh, the huge annuals that would come out in the comic book store. They're probably like size-wise, I'd say anywhere from maybe eight and a half by 12 or something like that. And this is also an artist that I like. His name's uh, Ed Piscor. And so he kind of uses a lot of like that size where he put all this. It's it's uh, very like that annual size. I, I think that's kind of where the inspiration part comes from that. In terms of the seven, there wasn't, that was based on, and, and sometimes, you know, work happens that way of, you know, an institution says, we want to want your work. We have X amount of money. And, you know, what can we get for this price type of thing? So it's like, okay, how can I best create something that works within the acquisition budget plus the time management of saying, like, we need it in six months? Okay. So, you know, there's that part of <laughs> that part of the artist of, of trying to look at it. I had created seriograph edition, uh, silkscreen print edition of eight images of the Tewa Tells the Suspense. So essentially, I would almost say that I kind of narrowed it down. It was originally supposed to be 10. Again, I ran out of time because this was created for my Master of Fine Arts exhibition. It was called Tewa Tells the Suspense at the uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. I have a Master's of Fine Arts in printmaking. So originally, I was going to do 10. Of course, you know, you have a limited time. In terms of printing, so I narrowed it down to eight images. Essentially, the seven that I have here, I think four of these images are from that seriograph edition. And then three additional I created separately apart from it. The 1598, the first, I guess you would say, the first image 
references the colonialization of New Mexico by Juan de Oñate, who came to a place called Junge or Junge or Winge. It's like Mockingbird Place in Tewa. It's a translation. And so that's kind of the first colony of New Mexico post-contact in 1540, I believe, by uh, Estebanico, the more more slave traveler, explorer, lost person. You know, he's got a whole interesting complex history as well, too. And then the second image is prior to the Pueblo Revolt, there were a group of Pueblo cultural leaders that were whipped, flogged, and then four of them were hung publicly in Santa Fe. This is all due to the repartimento encomienda system, indentured slavery, servitude, payment of heavy taxes, and then also conversion from Pueblo religion to Catholic faith as well. Let me just quickly jump in to note that you condense all of that into a single image. That, that's all there within the, the single work kind Correct. of happening front to back or back to front mm-hmm. in the front mm-hmm. to back in the image. Correct. So it's just kind of like highlights on, on, on the points that led up to the revolts. And then the revolt happened on uh, August 10th, 1680. You know, there were runners that served as messengers kind of telling of, of the revolt. And that's one of the pieces as well. There were 21 Franciscan priests killed in the revolt. So there's an image of Pueblo warrior who's also when you look at it, it kind of reminds you of like the ultimate warrior, the WWE or F or W, yeah, whatever, wrestling, the, uh, the company, whatever he was. But, you know, the uh, ultimate warrior kind of wrestling was throwing, you know, a priest and then the battle and then kind of the victory or, or the kind of victory and aftermath. The revolt also traveled into Arizona out to the uh, Hopi Mesas as well. And. So there's an image of Pueblo Hopi warrior with the beheaded priest. And so that's also part of those stories as well, too. So a lot of it's just truth telling, you know, not necessarily holding back punches and just kind of being realistic and upfront about what what exactly happened and, and transpired during the revolt. And then the last image is kind of victory where with a Pueblo male and female warrior you know, victorious. And Pueblo people were successful in having the Spanish removed or being chased down to El Paso for a period of 12 years. And then the Spanish came back with Diego Don de Vargas. In 1692, he returned to New Mexico and to Santa Fe. You know, there were several Pueblo revolts on a smaller scale, you know, that happened in uh, 1692, 1694, 1696. And so it was just a lot of that assertion of, of identity, Pueblo identity, you know, of, of being still here, still asserting ourselves, our tribal identity, cultural identity, our religion, our language, our connection to the land, our land bases, you know, sacred areas, cultural places. A lot of that fighting kind of post-1692 did, you know, assert Pueblo people's place here in, in New Mexico. I, I think I also say, you know, the bloodless wing conquest. So we were laughing earlier talking about that coffee talk. And, uh, you know, the bloodless reconquest was neither bloodless or a reconquest, you know. So those are some of those <laughs> things that, that you know, are, are to note when, when that term, you know, quote unquote, bloodless reconquest is used. So that that's pretty much what that the seven pieces in, in the Peabody Essex Museum talks about 
And it's interesting to note just the, the time period of 1692, and then that's when the Salem witch trials were happening, occurring there. So when I had taken a visit out to Peabody, Essex, museum a couple years back it was kind of interesting just to take the you know like the local Salem witch trial tour and learning about the history in regards to the uh, East India Company the land religion the religion's Protestant I believe is that correct yep yeah I mean just kind of the dress if you think of the big hat and the buckle and just kind of that coming out of England I guess yeah it was just really interesting to see how much it had to do with land ownership property widows where they had a huge amount of property and saying like oh you're a witch so you know we're we call you a witch and you know that's what happens and then also the kids where they're saying it was a chemical reaction to the wheat and barley and you know they were hallucinating and that was what was part of it as well too so it's just really interesting when you think about that and you know when you take the tour they talk about slavery smuggling pirates it made me think of jack sparrow or i should say captain jack sparrow so all of that history and of, of all of that area and being in that old east india company museum and seeing a Spanish Morion, a helmet that said this was attributed to Cortez, you know, so it was just interesting to see all those connections as well, too, of how colonization has an effect on Native peoples, on peoples today, on myself, and just seeing what's happening all in the world in terms of Spanish colonialism, French, up in the Great Lakes area. English, Dutch in, on the East Coast, and Spanish along on the Florida, and then also uh, West Coast California as well, too. One of, one of the things that's great about these works is you're joining the suggestion of printing comic books to ceramics, and you're using paint. You mentioned earlier that you are of a family full of potters, people who worked in ceramics pop psychology kind of way, one might be tempted to think you're marrying your interest in comic books and historical narrative to their materials. Is it that simple or are there other reasons you're attracted to joining paint and ceramic? I think it's interesting that you said their ceramics. I would say more our ceramics being that I, my studios and my parent, my grandparent, paternal grandparents' home that's probably missed 60 plus years old. And then living on land that belonged to, you know, great, great grandfather. So there's just that cultural, historical, personal connection to the land, to the environment. It's sometimes not, there's not a separation between thought and doing things. It's there, it's present, it's surrounded, it's, I'm enveloped in it, you know, it's an Adobe house. It's, you know, made from Adobes that are local, sourced locally. So <laughs> you can't get any more closer to the land than that, other than eating it, ingesting it, you know, which sometimes potters do, you know, they'll take a little bit of clay and, you know, put it on their tongue and it becomes part of you. It's nourishing you. You're taking care of it and you're, it's taking care of you. I think as far as traditional art, traditional craft, 
it's something that's always been there in terms of my upbringing, family, surrounding. It's nothing abnormal for people to be creative and then to know the use of materials, how it works. There are set maybe paradigms, set recipes, set ways, set prayers of gathering materials. But sometimes what you do with the material, as far as maybe decorative, there are rules and there are specific ways to create something. But on the other hand, you know, it's open as well, too. You know, that's that's also the other part of it. Part of my influence also comes from painting. My dad's a painter. And then also family members have been part of the Santa Fe Studio, which was a group of young Pueblo painters, boarding school students at the Santa Fe Indian School. And they had a a white teacher. Her name uh, was Dorothy Dunn. And so, you know, she kind of helped introduce kids to painting scenes. You know, they're at boarding school, so they're homesick. And she was like, what are your parents doing at school? What do you imagine them to kind of get away from their homesickness? So, you know, they paint dances and daily life scenes. So that's part of that influence, that graphic illustration of what's happening, of, you know, of having a series called the Corn Corn Maiden series, you know, where corn maidens are living, interacting in the 21st century, cell phones, and, you know, symbolism of technology and messages and are are similar to incantations for rain and songs. I think as far as using the materials It's also, part of it is going to art school. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in in art studio from the University of New Mexico. I remember taking a ceramics class. I guess you would say Western, Eastern ceramics class. And, you know, they're talking about grog and they're talking about slip and temper and glaze and cones. And, you know, all of that was foreign to me. I'm coming from a, you know, long, long line of pottery traditions, unbroken pottery traditions. You know, I didn't really necessarily want to heavily influence that on my own work rather than using commercial materials. So, you know, at that time, kind of just choosing to use the um, traditional materials, traditional pigments, traditional process as far as outdoor firing versus using a gas or electric kiln. So those those are kind of, you know, those choices of making early on of saying, you know, I'm, I'm keeping it within the traditional materials, processes, and then how can I create work that has that contemporary aspect to it? But then when you look at members pottery, you know, you see hunting scenes, you see daily life scenes, childbirthing, animals, fishing. There's also, you know, you don't see as much in museums or books, but it's there. You'll see it in collections, but they're not really shown. I guess you would say people call them pornographic, but they're not pornographic. They're just, you know, sex scenes, I guess, or, you know, love scenes. So you you see all these different different aspects of, of daily life. And then you see ceremonial Kiva murals, ancestral Kiva murals. And, you know, those, some of those are daily life scenes. Some of those are maybe iconography relating to nature, religion, 
maybe superhero stories in that sense. You could call them that too. So that's also that visual storytelling. Same thing with rock art. So, you know, in that sense, it's not really necessarily like it's new. It's just a different interpretation. My own interpretation, I usually refer to it as, you know, documenting the ever-changing cultural landscape of Santa Clara Pueblo of Hapoinga. So that's kind of how I usually um, state it. And so I don't think that I'm really doing much difference. It's just the different, looking through a different lens, maybe. My my own lens, my own experiences as a um, Pueblo man living in the 21st century, you know, with choosing to have a master's degree and a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree and enjoying comic books and movies and films and beer and cheese and food and choosing to live here continue living here in Santa Clara Pueblo on land that's been in the family for, you know, hundreds of years. So one of the things that your work does for me is that it suggests that history isn't only something old, but that it can be felt and Mm -hmm. that it has texture because of course your work actually does have texture when one sees it installed on a wall, for example, you know, obviously you're not touching the work in the museum, mm-hmm. but, but, but you can understand inherently what it would be like to touch the work, to feel the tooth mm-hmm. of the work, if you will. So were you, are you interested in any of those, those kinds of metaphors? That is one of those things of clay tile. Uh, a lot of my work is mainly clay tile flat. It's not necessarily two dimensions. The design is two dimensions since it's painted on the surface of the tile, the clay tile. Clay tiles average anywhere from maybe f- as small as maybe three and a half. I, I prefer going about seven inches to about 10 to, you know, 15 inches. I think the pieces in the show are about eight and a half by 13-ish, somewhere in there. Much the same size as, like I said, the uh, annual comic books. Close enough to comic but, book size that they're immediately recognizable as referencing that size, yeah. Right, exactly. The thing with clay tiles, I would say in terms of like ceramics, like I don't know what you call it, Western ceramics, like well, you you have them in a slab roller, you know, you just put a piece of clay and it's like you just roll it out and it's uniform and you cut it. But with my tiles, I prefer to hand form them and leaving indentations of, of my handprints of, of that maker's mark. In 2002 to 2007, I also worked for the Santa Clara Pueblo administration. I was doing land land acquisition, traditional ancestral land acquisition, reacquisition of, of our tribal lands, and also uh, protection of cultural resources. So we would go out to some of our ancestral villages that, you know, haven't been occupied for probably 300 plus years or so. As a potter, as an artist, you know, I would go out onto those ancestral villages and, you know, find pot shirts. I recall finding a pot shirt that was pretty large. You know, it it was an old pot that had been clearly broken and the size of the pot diameter probably would have had to been at least about eight inches or so. But the the piece that I found was about the size of my hand, you know, was linked, you know, as as rain, wind and everything erodes the landscape, you know, was sitting there and looking at it. But, you know, it was curved like my hand and looking at it, I could see 
clearly a fingerprint and hand marks when the maker smoothed the pot and the inside of the pot and was making it, you know, that, that indentation and that fingerprint still remained three, 400 years from when it was created. And again, like I said, my own self of being this coming from a pottery tradition, seeing that, knowing that one of my ancestors made that pot, it was just kind of mind blowing to think that we still have that connection you know three four or five hundred years later and you know you can i i can name the ancestral village i know the tewa traditional name for that village you know just that history that connection that that cultural connection the artistic connection that craftsman craftswoman however connection as well too so that was what i really liked about wanting to carry that onto my tile work because early on it was very flat and like flawless in that sense like it was straight but now after that experience you know wanting to make it intentionally with the hand prints or hand markings or you could see the indentations of, of my finger fingers on there as I made it so the, that that's part of that the texture of the tooth of, of having that of seeing that maker's mark and then also the, in terms of the pigments, you can see they do have a tooth to them. And I, I do, they do like to have it because technically it makes the paint stick easier for myself too. So, so you know, again, you learn things as, as you create over the years and your preferences. And then it does become a style also where I have had other Pueblo potters comment on that saying like, I really like that you have your tiles you know, they're not perfectly square. There's not a 90 degree angle on each of the four corners. You know, they're a little off or maybe I can see the indentations when you, you know, when you have your tiles looking at it flat versus, you know, you know, looking at it, you can see, you know, the, um, you know, wavy shadow. And things like that. Yeah. The shadow, wavy shadow. Kind of subverts the form of the mass printed comic book, mm-hmm. which is also fun. I want to wrap up by asking about a form that recurs in a lot of your work, including in one of the works at the Peabody Essex. And I'm going to try, you know, we'll have images on manpodcast.com, but I'm going to try and describe it. It's of half circles of various colors amalgamated into a shape that recalls a cloud with rain seeming to come from it. What is that form? What motivate it? And why do you use and reuse and reuse it? Yeah, that's kind of interesting that you say that. You know, I've had in graduate school, people would always say like, oh, is that your design specific, like your signature? And I'd say, and it's, no, it's my cultural icon, the cloud, rain cloud, you know, those curved forms is the abstract rain cloud falling with rain falling from it. Sometimes it might have thunder. Or, or lightning coming out of it, rather. And so using that ancestral icon of the, the rain cloud is also part of that connection to my cultural past and my cultural connection and, you know, the blessings of rain and representations of our ancestors. So, you know, that that's part of that, just the recognition of, of the past into the current work, you know, like you look at a, a hundred year old plus P 
piece of pottery that has a rain cloud. So, you know, you can see that cultural connection. Whereas if I did not have that in some ways, I feel that there's that connection lost. So it's just keeping that, that connection. And then the different colors are representational colors. Uh, Tewa cosmology has six, six directions, you know, northwest, east, south, and then the heavens and then the earth. So each of those six directions also have color symbolism as well, too. So each direction has a different color that it's represented by also mountains, animals as well, too. So birds, you know, so there's all, all different cultural connections and coding, I guess, in that sense. So then I also use that in my own work of using color symbolism, where maybe a Tewa viewer will understand it, see that coding but a non-Indian or a non-Pueblo person may not understand that coding. So that's also part of it as well, too, of, of, of keeping that. And then, you know, with um, comic books, you know, you know, we have our comic book fans. We have our icons. If you see an S in a triangle, upside down, tri- inverted triangle, we pretty much know what the S means. Or... Um, <laughs> Yeah, this or even iconography as far as, you know, uh, school logos and things like that. And, you know, I'm a pretty big, you know, like that stuff, you know, like that W, mostly W. It's pretty, it's pretty, you know, you know, or you see a, a blue star and it's like, oh, that's a football team. So, you know, just things like that. Using symbolism in the work is is something that I really, really like to use. I mean, that cloud symbol, in a sense, has become almost like that Superman symbol or the batman symbol you see it and you know what it is kind of thing so yeah the way the way you take things from the comic book form and turn them 90 degrees Mm. and then maybe turn them again 90 degrees is is a lot of fun jason garcia Mm. thanks so much yeah thank you very much have a great day modern art notes listeners that's all for this week's show The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.